Saturday, December 19th. Percy's dad drove slowly down Main Street, craning his neck to find the house marked 172. There's 170, and, well, here we are. Percy couldn't make herself look. She was relieved not to have seen Adam since landing in Madison, but at the same time, longed to see him, and also was afraid that she would. That she'd see him peering at her from behind curtains, or perched on a distant roof like a ninja. She stared down at her purse and pulled at Adam's pendant until the chain bit into her neck. When she finally raised and turned her head, her eyes followed a long flight of stairs up to a tall, narrow house. Cream paint was peeling off of its red bricks. It was ringed by a deep porch with a glowing orange ceiling. All of the windows were open, each with thin curtains gently puffing. The bright blue front door opened a crack, then shut quietly. Okay, hon. Looks like that was your cue. I'll wait here. Yeah, I'm sure I won't be long. There's no need to make this any more awkward than it's already going to be. Be as long as you need. I brought three very complex, nearly unintelligible books. Percy paused with one foot out of the car. Dad? He tipped his head down to peer over his reading glasses. This is all really crazy, right? And how wonderfully so. Oh, hello! A sprightly woman cooed hello in a voice as piccolo as her body. She had kinky brown hair that reached six inches to each side of her head, like frantic root filament searching for something to grab onto and climb. She was wearing blue jeans, a gray tank top, and a clunky string of large beads made of dried mud that looked to have been dyed with berries, beets, and walnuts. She squeaked while reaching out to clasp one of Percy's elbows. Come in, come in. How nice to meet a friend of Adam's. Come in, come in. Can I get you some tea? She tilted her head to the ceiling and yelled, Horace, bring the tea! The woman led Percy into a warm living room where lace seemed to be draped over anything that didn't move. When a cat emerged from behind a pillow, dragging a lace doily along with it, Percy laughed out loud. <laughs> That's Cats, with a Z. He is very shy. Take his seat, it'll be warm. Oh, speaking of which, let me shut the window. It was gorgeous today, but now that the sun's going down, it'll get chilly. Oh, I'm so sorry, dear. I never introduced myself. I'm Adeline. I'm Adam's daughter. Adam's daughter? Oh, he didn't tell you about me. Well, I'm not surprised. I was a sore reminder of my mom, whom he loved so much. Too much, really. He loved her like he loved me. To bits and pulverized pieces. Sounds nice, but that left no room for him and kept him stuck in so many ways. That's why he did it, I suppose. Why he did what? Well, he pretended I didn't exist. Went to Fort Knox to die instead of coming here, an actual home. He wanted, at the very end, to be himself. A lone integer with no equation. I can't blame him. And I don't. He'd taken care of me for fifty years. Fifty years, imagine that. For half a century, I've never wanted a thing. Thanks to him. And thanks to you, my darling. 
A burly man with slightly bowed legs and a corkscrew smile had come into the room carrying a tray of tea. Me what, darling? What have I done now? You, dear, have made me so very happy. Just one constant stream of happiness. <laughs> Horace said to Percy, Hey, the woman makes me out to be a good version of bad potato salad. Oh, Horace! Percy, don't mind Horace. Sometimes he has a shitty perspective on life. Wouldn't you agree, my little dumpling? <laughs> As Percy smiled and Adeline giggled, he mumbled a defense. <laughs> Feces are a very versatile metaphor. So, you're Adam's friend? I never got to know Adam that well. His visits consisted of swooping in, doling out cursory, hello, 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 and then retreating up to his office up there, his indoor treehouse. If he'd been a vampire, trees would have been his blood. But old Adam was right to be obsessed with trees. They are quite the creature. Still, yet frenetically moving. Vulnerable, can't run, but still formidable. They form collaborative relationships with their environments in order to survive and have obviously been quite successful. They're psychological heroes, stuck in the place where their seed landed, just happy to have taken hold and survived. When confronted with a strong wind, they bend to avoid breaking, but if they break, they don't fret. They patiently wait for sacrophytic mushrooms, chewing insects, and deer with itchy antlers to help them return to the soil. Horsey, why have you never introduced me to your tree friends? Well, obviously, I'm not saying trees are people. They, of course, can't think like you and me. I'd never wish that on them. They'd all either die of boredom or wilt with certainty of their lack of worth, or attract parasitic vines for codependent relationships, or willingly fork over valuable nutrients to microbes in exchange for psychedelic mushroom spores. What I am saying is trees do more than just stand there making rustling lullabies, and they deserve a dramatic tribute. We can learn from them, is all I'm saying. Percy wondered if Horace's appreciation of trees had anything to do with his resemblance to a lumberjack. Sounds like tree should be used as a verb. Daddy, I like this one. Your father befriends good people. Percy, do you know where a tree gets its mass? Before Percy could say anything, Adeline scolded and shushed her husband. Shh, Horsey, shh. Don't harass the young woman. She's just arrived after a long trip and does not need strangers to accost her with such questions. Without missing a beat, Horace continued. Many people assume trees get their bulk by extracting nutrients from the soil. But that's not true! It can't be! Trees in a small pot of soil can grow to be huge without the soil ever being replaced. So do you know the answer, Percy? Where does a tree get its mess? Percy was smiling because Horace could have been her father's twin. It didn't matter that this man's body was double the size of her dad's, or that his hair was smooth and blonde while her dad's was a coarse salt and pepper. And though Horace looked at her through dark hazel eyes versus her dad's greenish-gray, they both had the same keen sparkle. I don't know. Well, don't just give up. Um, okay. So, not the soil. And probably not the minerals from water, because there are big, huge trees in some deserts. And probably not anything underground because of what you said about pots. Uh, what else do they have access to? I mean, air. That can't be it. I don't know, Horace. Yes, my name is Horace. How else can trees collect mass? 
Percy laughed as he fluttered his hands around the exhales he'd collected. Pinching and pulling, he cast a spell to make the imaginary tree grow larger and larger. Heavy boughs have to be made of hefty material. <coughs> <coughs> okay, exhales? More specific? Exhales are specifically carbon dioxide, so carbon, carbon from our breath. Throwing a fist in the air and straightening his back, Horace yelled, Bingo! Then, just as suddenly, his back hunched and he looked up at Adeline shyly. Now, why were we talking about this? The usual reason. To humor you, my dear. Uh, oh, <clears throat> oh, well. Percy had picked up a Ruggalach cookie and was examining it carefully. Horsey, Horsey, look. She's eaten them before. Percy, did Adam share my cookies with you? I sent him a batch, but I wasn't sure they'd arrived. He coveted them. Oh, he did. Well, that's nice. Now, as to why you're here, Percy, or is it Persephone? Percy instantly began to feel jittery. Oh, um, either is fine. Well, Percy, my father wanted you to have something. You were special to him, and I can already see why. Can't you, Horace? Uh-huh. You're a true blue. One of those people who know who they are without knowing that they know, you know, and probably think they don't know. I, I don't know about that. I feel lucky to have known Adam. He isn't like anyone else. Or wasn't. I guarantee he wasn't, dear. Now, let's go up to his study and we'll get your package. Uh, I left my dad in the car outside. Can he come in? Oh my, oh my goodness! I thought that car was a taxi cab. Adeline bolted out the front door, squeaking like a dog toy. Ah! Oh my goodness! Before they knew it, Percy's dad was sitting with his hands wrapped around a mug of steaming tea. Aleo, Horace. Horace, Aleo. All right, Percy, this way, please. Percy called out over the banister as she followed Adeline upstairs. Horace, I don't think my dad knows where trees get their mass. The door to Adam's study opened with the sound of white noise. It scraped so tightly against the dense carpet that Adeline had to put her tiny shoulder into it. He, he liked it quiet. Percy immediately knew what the room would look like. The aroma had packed into her nostrils and pores. When Adeline clicked on the desk lamp, she saw she'd been right. Everything inside the room was wood. From the paneling on the walls and shutters over the windows, to an Adirondack chair, built-in desk, and a folding chair, everything was made of cedar. A raw and tawny cedar, like the belly of a deer. Through a skylight built into the pitch ceiling, Percy could see the tops of swaying trees. Wow, it sure is like a treehouse. Oh yes, was his brand after all. Probably didn't get tiresome for you, as you didn't know him for fifty years. It does smell nice in here, though. That's how he always smelled. Adeline's voice trailed away as she followed a memory. After shaking her head back into the present moment, she opened the desk drawer and pulled out a small black box. Now then, Persephone, here is what Adam wanted you to have. 
Percy balanced the box on her fingertips as if it were a dead butterfly. We're supposed to have the lawyer here, but he's a family friend. I promised him we'd hand it over. What is it? It's a very special family heirloom. Percy immediately retraced the path the box had taken, tried to put it back into Adeline's hand. Oh, no, I can't. I insist. As long as you won't, you know, sell it on eBay? No, of course not. Then take it. It's yours, my dear. I... All right, thank you. Is it okay, though, if I look at this later? Whatever you want, dear. Shall we go back downstairs? When Percy paused and looked at the desk, Adeline amended. Or or you can sit here for a little while if you want. Yeah, could I? Just for a minute? Adeline squeezed Percy's elbow and wrestled the door shut behind her. During its scratchy slurp, Percy lowered herself into the Adirondack chair. <sighs> Adam. Young Adam. I really, really miss you. You are so real. Percy looked around the room, took a deep breath, and wiped the tears from her eyes. She pinched the pendant she wore around her neck and whispered, Thank you, Adam. Old Adam. Real Adam. I'll never forget you. After stepping back into the hallway and pulling the door shut, she heard a board creak further down the hall. Hello? When Percy got back downstairs, the tea room was empty. She fidgeted in the doorway, awkward about being alone in the stranger's house, until a burst of laughter swelled from her left. The chattering led her down the hall to a room that was the exact polar opposite of the lace-covered, frilly Victorian sitting room. She peered into a stark space that could have been a laboratory. The bookcases had flat metallic doors. All surfaces were bare, and thin cushions on benches satirized comfort. Despite the austere surroundings, the adults were having a jolly good time. They were circled up, holding heavy glasses of whiskey. Adeline and Haleo leaned against a tall table, while Horace danced around in front of them, gesticulating enough to put his drink in serious jeopardy. Yes, but natural selection doesn't give a shit about humans after they've lived past their reproductive age. Except maybe women, because after menopause they offer societal value by teaching younger generations how to survive, but old men just sit around and complain. We are of no use. Isn't that right, my dear? Adeline smirked as her eyes widened. Oh dear, you make a lovely potato stew that I couldn't imagine life without. And once past its reproductive age, all communication in the body slowly winds down and calibrates one single message, which is, Stop! You've done what you're supposed to do, now go die. Haleo cut in, jabbing with his whiskey glass. Now, doesn't that all depend on what supposed to means? I mean, are we humans solely supposed to procreate? Or could we be meant for more? We're made of trillions of cells, each individually following its programming, not as mere drones or evolution's minions, but as pioneers striving toward their potentials with a zeal and a hunger. If that weren't the case, humans wouldn't wind down. They'd simply drop dead when they were done making offspring. But we don't, because we're a reflection of our trillions of cells, 
which are earnestly living their lives to the fullest. Now this is where good scientists go bad. Looking for a thread of meaning, for idealism, in what is straightforward, unabashed meaninglessness. Well, then I'll give you an example. Human immune cells chasing after a single bacterium. It's on YouTube. Well, we can look it up. You can watch a neutrophil in real time, doggedly chasing a bacterium, a tiny little black speck that's rushing away. The hunter cell pushes smaller blood cells aside and finally engulfs the bacterium and dissolves it with enzymes. As you watch, you can't help but cheer it on and wonder if it's having fun. It's doing exactly what it was programmed to do. It's so easily reaching its potential because that's all it is able to do. Imagine the pure thrill in that. But neither cell nor bacterium are thinking. The cell's just following a chemical gradient. The bacterium leaves a chemical trail. The cell follows it. It's dogged, but not rational or purposeful. Can't think. Even better! That's a benefit. It's fair to argue that most thoughts severely hamper human potential. When first grade teachers tell kids they're clumsy, those children become adults who feel inexplicable embarrassment while jogging across an intersection when the light turns yellow, right? The subconscious never forgets even if the rational brain can't remember. I challenge you to introduce me to a human person who feels adequate in every way. Who's achieved all they can, physically, emotionally, psychologically. You can't. But if I restate that challenge and replace human person with human cell, well, you could just reach out your hand and show me billions of satisfied cells. Or point to your liver and show me trillions. Despite this whiskey, even. Cells are led to their potential by chemical gradients, which I agree are completely passionless, but nonetheless, they constantly embody the epitome of all that is possible for them in that moment. Even if a person eats nothing but Twinkies and Twizzlers, has scurvy, pneumonia, and syphilis, their cells are still doing all they can with the resources available to them. Now, boys, you may well both be right, but the simple fact is, no matter how content cells are to fully embody their potentials, they do not last forever. Every time a cell replicates, it passes on a signal about how old it is. The telomeres, the bits at the end of the DNA, get shorter and shorter, just like an hourglass, but with nucleic acids instead of sand. When the telomeres run out, it's lights out for that cell. So you see, regardless of their motivations, despite their focus, diligence, or even happiness, Horace is right that cells fade according to very simple programming. Haleo asked with a gentle smile, Are you saying that in the end, all this doesn't even matter? Oh, no, no, no. I'm saying that our cells don't know that they've got limited time. Our cells don't see or feel their telomeres like we can see our wrinkles and grays or feel our aches and twinges. And so what I'm saying is that ignorance of their death affords them perpetual youth. They're orchestrating hundreds of chemical reactions per second because that's what they're programmed to do and then suddenly, whoops, they die. But until that last moment, whether they're buzzing with the thrill of accomplishment as Haleo suggests, or numb and robotic as Horsey thinks, it's clear that when our cells are doing what they're meant to do, we feel we are too. Contentment is a sense that comes from biochemicals. And where do these biochemicals come from? Our cells, of course. Indeed, Hadeline. A good point. While we are far from ignorant of our tiptoeing mortality, we might as well take a cue from ourselves. The poster children for how to go beyond savoring every moment. They're just savoring. They're just doing it. Blind to their limitations, in every moment, they push, push, push to reach their potentials. 
however defined. Yes, but I think there's even more to it. Perhaps that is where our rational brains come in. If we were to make conscious decisions solely on the basis of whether or not an action would help our trillions of cells, if we purposely give them what they need to do their jobs, that means eat the right foods, exercise, give attention to the right thoughts, help others when they need it, etc, etc, well, those decisions could do nothing but enhance the performance of our cells. And from our point of view as an organism, maybe it's not reproductive capacity in a physical, actual sense that natural selection is trying to prolong, but reproductive verve that's important. What if? What if a shimmer of vibrancy is what will make our lives both more satisfying in every moment, as well as longevitous? Who cares whether or not we can still make babies? It might be that we can keep our telomeres nice and long and fluttery, like the tassels on the handlebars of my first bike if we just live for ourselves, if we live like ourselves. So, in living this way, despite aging, we become perpetually young, perpetually satisfied. Horace, who'd been uncharacteristically mute, looked back and forth between Adeline and Haleo and murmured, I propose a toast to perpetual youth. Here, here. Here, here. Well, Horace, I'd be much obliged if one of those rational, longevity-inducing decisions should include pouring a tad more of that very old whiskey into this very empty glass. Percy retreated into the hallway. It had been a long while since she'd seen her dad enjoy the company of other humans like that, not since late-night kitchen conversations with her mom. Instead of interrupting and pulling him away, she decided to go sit on the lacy couch and discover what was in the box Adam had given her. But before she retraced her steps to the room of lace, a warm orange glow caught her eye. Feeling confused, because it was well past sunset, Percy walked even deeper into the house. Following the glow took her to the back porch. The sky was the dim gray of early evening, but under the porch there was an eternal sunset. An ochre ceiling and tangerine sconces created a burning sky. She looked out at the expanse of lawn. The property had neighbors on both sides, but was surrounded by tall trees and full shrubs. This gave the yard a refreshing feel, like stumbling into a hidden meadow after hiking for hours through a dense forest, or emerging from tall reeds to see a wide and clear lake, as she'd done with young Adam. <gasps> oh, shit. Percy thought she caught a glimpse of young Adam in the shadows. She'd guessed her hallucinations would start up again. After she took a seat on the stoop, she looked up to see young Adam very clearly. He was peeking from behind the ornate wooden gate of the vegetable garden. Ignoring him, she rested her eyes on the box that sat in her cupped hands. Percy asked out loud, Okay, Adam, what did I come all this way for? The box creaked as it opened. And inside she saw... Love Makes Old New was written and produced by someone called Dora Henry. For more information and sound credits, visit lovemakesoldnew.wordpress.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave an iTunes rating. Thanks for listening.